Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Resurrection City Church. My name is Julie, if I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, and I am one of the pastors here at Res City. So we are always just so thankful to have an, uh, all of you worship with us this morning, whether you're here in person or if you're watching online. Uh, we're just so thankful that you're here with us. All right, so if you are just joining us, we are almost done with a series that we've been calling Rebuilding Around Jesus. So this series has kind of been a look at some of the basic beliefs of Christianity, some of the things that kind of come along with it. But we're not just looking at it um, as you maybe have been used to hearing about it, but we're sort of trying to peel back some of those extra things that get attached to the basic beliefs that we have. So trying to pull back the different layers so that we can really look at Jesus, what he says, and hopefully rebuild around that. Um, if you've heard the term deconstructing, uh, it's a thing that a lot of people have been feeling lately, just kind of asking hard questions about the faith. And so we are trying to create a space for that to hopefully pull back some things, but then also to hopefully rebuild uh, around Jesus himself. And if you have been here before, you know that we are taking questions during the sermon series. So if during the uh, message there's something that you have a question about, um, that you'd like to hear more about, we encourage you to go to our website, so resstatechurch.org, and there should be a box where you can type in your questions and send them in. And at the end, I'll take a couple um, we won't have time to get through all of them, but we do tend to film a YouTube video afterwards with any remaining questions. So don't forget to do that if you're interested in that. Okay, so today I have the job of talking about culture and how Christians should interact with it. Now, when we put this series together a while back, uh, Joel and I were talking about, you know, well, which ones do we want to kind of, how do we want to divide it? And he's like, well, you should take the one about culture. You love to talk about this kind of stuff. And he's, he's right. I like talking about culture. I enjoy it. I like pop culture. I like thinking through, you know, how does our faith inform how we think about these things. But as Joel and I talked about this specific sermon and what we felt like when we think about culture right now in this moment, what do we really feel like we need um, to talk about in terms of how we interact with it? And the thing we kept coming back to was sort of how culture has been so divided in recent years and right now. Uh, and how a lot of that can kind of come into uh, politics and other things like that, identity, and then all of that leading to this division that we've been experiencing. This is not my favorite subject to talk about necessarily. If you've been here, you know that Joel is the one who loves to talk about politics. Um, but I am excited to talk about it today because I think uh, the passage that we're going to look at is really interesting, and uh, I'm excited to dig into it with all of you. I'd much rather be answering the question of like, you know, should I watch Game of Thrones or not? I feel like that was the big culture question for a long time. Uh, I'd much rather talk about that, but I am very excited um, today to talk about just, you know, when we think about culture, why are we always saying like, oh, everything just feels so political, or I, I just avoid talking about it because I don't want to get into it with people. Um, so we just want to kind of dig into some of that, look at how to deal with such a fractured, um, divisive culture that we're often finding ourselves in. And thankfully for us, Jesus lived in a very similar type of culture. Uh, it was very divided. There was all of culture and identity was kind of centered around politics. And so thankfully for us, we get to look at how he responded um, and sort of take some ideas and things from him. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we will dive into the passage. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you so much for giving us this chance to gather together and worship you this morning. 
Uh, I just pray that as we look at your son, as we look at Jesus, who he was, um, how he lived, you would help us to become more like him, that you would make us all into the image of your son and uh, continue to do that work. We praise you for the work that you have been doing in each and everybody's life who is here today, um, and we just we trust that you are going to continue that work, and we praise you for that. In your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so the passage we're going to look at this morning is Matthew twenty-two fifteen through 22. So I'm going to read it for us. Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him, Jesus, in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Not sure if that's like a backhanded uh, little dig in there or what that is. Uh, They go on to say, Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius, and he asked him, Whose image is this, and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, So give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. When they heard this, they were amazed. So they left him and went away. Okay, so this passage is one of those ones that, like, on face value, you're like, this seems pretty straightforward. And yet, there are some things about it that feel kind of strange, right? So what's exactly going on here? I want to talk about the culture that they were living in and kind of what some of the the things at play that we may not always pick up on were going on. So what we are told uh, in this passage is that uh, the people who are asking the question are trying to trap Jesus. So this little Q&R that's going to happen here is not just an honest question. It seems like there's something behind it. We're told they're trying to trap him. And we also know that somehow Jesus' answer, which, you know, upon first read seems pretty straightforward, leaves everyone amazed, right? Like, they didn't walk away angry. They didn't walk away satisfied. They walked away amazed. So let's, let's dig in and try to see what, how does that work? Why, why are they amazed by his answer? Um, and what are they really asking here in this question? So right away, it says that the Herodians and the Pharisees are the ones who come to Jesus to ask this question. I didn't know, you know, I kind of forget a lot of these things of like who's who and who are the Herodians and why would it matter that these two groups are coming together. Um, But the reason it matters is because these guys were on opposite ends of the political spectrum. So why would they come together? Why would they work together to ask Jesus this question? Ultimately, what they want is for Jesus to pick a side. They want to know, where do you fall? Let's reveal your politics here, Jesus. They want to know, do I, if I follow you, do I have to be on board with a certain candidate? Uh, is Jesus Democrat or Republican? Which candidate would Jesus have voted for in 2020? Like, they want to know, where does Jesus' alliance lie? Allegiance lie, sorry about that. Uh, and this is what they're asking. But the specific question that they ask is about taxes. And they weren't just asking in general, like, hey, Jesus, do you think people should pay taxes? Like, overall. They're asking about a very specific tax. So here in this text, they call it the imperial tax. Um, It's also known as a head tax or a poll tax. And it was a tax that was imposed on anyone that lived in Roman-controlled area who wasn't Roman or a Roman citizen. So it was 
a tax that was deeply resented by the people who lived there and had to pay it. Um, later on in history, there's a guy in church history called Tertullian who lived in Africa, um, and he called it a badge of slavery because it was sort of this reminder that, like, Rome is over us, right? Like, they're the ones who will kind of, it feels like they own us, and they want us to pay this tax because to them it shows that they are in charge of us. It actually wasn't that large of an amount of tax, but it had more to do with the significance of it, why people hated it so much. And actually, about 25 years prior to Jesus, so before he started his ministry, when he was just a little kid, there was actually, when they instituted the tax, there was an armed revolt that took place because people were so upset about this tax. And this armed revolt was led by a guy named Judas the Galilean. So this is not Judas that was the disciple of Jesus, right? This came before Jesus' ministry. But his name is Judas the Galilean. He was known for starting the Zealot movement. So hang on to that. We'll come back to that. So just tuck that away in your brain. Uh, but he was also what many people considered a failed Messiah type. So there were kind of these people who showed up on the scene who were like, I'm going to, you know, I have this mission, I'm going to gather followers. And then, unfortunately for Judas, uh, he was eventually killed, and his mission just kind of dissolved, right? His followers were like, oh, well, guess he wasn't the Messiah. He died. Uh, and they kind of moved on. And he's actually mentioned in Acts, the book of Acts, which happens after Jesus' ministry. Uh, there's a situation where some of the high priests are really annoyed with Jesus' followers for going out and telling everybody they should believe in Jesus. And they're like, maybe we should just kill them all. And one guy stands up and he's like, no, let's just leave them because there's been all these failed messiahs before. And once we kill the messiah guy, then everybody just kind of, like, they give up. They don't keep trying to fulfill this mission. Uh, and in Acts 5.37, um, they're listing these people, and they, they list. It says, after him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census, with this tax, and led a band of people in revolt. He, too, was killed, and his followers were scattered. So we've, we got, we've got history on this guy. There's history books that, that reference him and kind of this whole movement. And a big part of his mission was that he encouraged Jews not to register with the government so that they wouldn't have to pay taxes. He believed that God was the ultimate king and that paying taxes to Caesar was almost like treason to God because it was saying that Caesar was in charge and not God. So this is starting to make a little bit more sense as to why they're asking Jesus this question. Not only are they trying to check out his politics, uh, what, you know, is he a, a zealot or not? Where does he fall on the spectrum? But Jesus also had a lot of similarities to this Judas guy. They were both from Galilee, uh, Judas the Galilean talked about the kingdom of God all the time. It was like the basis of his mission. It was like, God is king, Caesar is not, we need to you know, not pay taxes to Caesar because God is the true king. Jesus also talks about the kingdom of God a whole lot. Right before Judas the Galilean started his armed revolt, he went into the temple and cleansed it. And a couple stories right before this in the book of Matthew and in the other books of the gospel, it records the account of Jesus going into the temple and cleansing the temple. So you're starting to see there's some, uh, some patterns here, some things that maybe they're starting to wonder. They're not just asking, Jesus, what are your politics? But they're asking, Jesus, are you here to start a revolution? Are you going to lead us in revolt? Are you going to go and, and try to, you know, take the capital? So if Jesus says, no, don't pay your taxes, 
it's going to be interpreted as, let's go, it's go time. We're starting this armed revolt right now. But if he says, yes, pay your taxes, it's going to be interpreted as, well, you're bowing to Caesar. You don't really believe God is the true king. You think Caesar is the true king. So hopefully now you're starting to see, this was a tricky question. It wasn't as maybe as straightforward as, you know, on first read, it sounds like pretty simple, but there was actually a lot of uh, really charged political dynamics that went into this question. And how Jesus responded could have like set off a revolution or could have gone in a totally different direction. So let's look at how Jesus responds. First, he calls them out and says, you hypocrites, don't mess with Jesus. He will shoot straight with you. Says, why are you trying to trap me? Then he says, show me the coin used for paying the tax. So they brought him a denarius and he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? So he asks them, show me a denarius. Uh, And a denarius was a silver coin that we know about because we actually have like them in museums and things. I I looked it up to get the picture. You can actually buy one on eBay for $1,000 if you really feel like you want a a piece of that history. Um, And to answer Jesus' question, this is Tiberius Caesar. And the inscription says, son of God, Augustus, that was supposed to be his his father. Um, And so it's saying essentially that Tiberius is Caesar is God, and he is the son of God. So when Jesus asks whose image is on the coin, uh, he actually uses the Greek word icon for image. And if you look up that word, throughout the New Testament, it's used all over to talk about being in the image of God, being made in his likeness, representing him, being conformed to the image of God, something we talk about a lot here. And for the Jewish people, you actually were not supposed to have any kind of image or likeness of any type of God. So for the Jewish people, they would have had in their minds passages like Exodus um, 20, verse 4, that says, You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in waters below. So this type of image would have been considered like Uh, worshiping another god or worshiping another image. And especially bad in Jewish Jewish culture was the idea of emperor worship because it was saying that God isn't king, this emperor or this uh, Caesar is king instead. So it would have been almost idolatrous to carry one of these around. And Jesus basically just turned the trap around and said, aha, I got you, right? He's saying, you're the one, you're the hypocrite, you're the one who's carrying around this image of another God. Really, it's kind of brilliant when you think about it. So let's look at what else he says. He says, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. So the language here is specific. He says, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's. And so he's saying, yeah, sure, maybe Caesar, this money is Caesar's, right? He created it. He actually probably minted it out of his own money, his own wealth. It was his image stamped on it. It's his. So Jesus says, give it back to him if he asks. It's his money. But then he says, give to God what is God's. So what did God create? What has God's image on it? It's you. It's me. It's everyone. All of creation. God created us in his own image. We are called to give God what is God's. That's us, our heart, 
our minds, our lives. So Jesus is saying, sure, give Caesar his money. At the end of the day, that doesn't matter. But don't forget who created you. Don't forget whose image you bear. It's not Caesar's. It's God's. You belong to him. So give Caesar his money, but notice he says, no more than that. So what Jesus is calling for is actually an act of political resistance in a way. What does Caesar want? What does a tyrant like Caesar want? He wants everything. He wants all of you. He wants your total allegiance. And we can't give him that because we know that we belong to God, not to any earthly king, but only to the true king. So you can see from this seemingly simple question and response session, uh, it's actually deceptively complicated. And Jesus creates this, uh, this new way of looking at things. He kind of creates a new idea of what it looks like to live in this world, to interact with what is Caesar's, and yet to have some kind of political resistance to keep God as the true king. So in this passage, we see that the, the pull to find identity in politics, it's not new. The pull to divide, right? You've got two people from these opposite uh, viewpoints on the political spectrum who are like, let's come together and let's see, let's make Jesus pick a side. So that's not new. But Jesus' response was. When the people leave, Matthew says they're amazed, right? I would think that they're probably angry. Jesus kind of called them out. He flipped the trap on them. But they actually walk away amazed because Jesus creates this new way of engaging with the culture around them. And he creates this new way both personally and in community. So I want to talk through both of those things. Let's look at the way he creates a, a new culture of interacting with politics personally first. He doesn't tell people to disengage with the culture around them. He's not against government or against politics, but he does warn them about getting too connected. And this applies, just as a side note, to any other aspect of culture. So maybe you feel totally removed from politics. If you do, please tell me how you do that, because it does feel like it's everywhere. But if you do feel that way, um, I think other aspects of culture to this in, apply to this as well. We can get too connected to other things in culture. So if that's you, you can kind of try to filter through some of that. But he says, don't get too connected. Give back to Caesar what he's owed, but no more than that. You belong to God, not to Caesar. So what he's against is this idea of political enmeshment. So if you've heard that term before, it's kind of a psychological term. Uh, the definition I found says, a relationship between two or more people, or in this case, maybe entities, in which personal boundaries are permeable and unclear. So it's kind of in the name, enmeshment, but think about mesh. <laughs> uh, it's something we can picture, and there's, there is somewhat of a barrier, right? Like there is physical things in between whatever is on either side of the mesh, but it's really connected still. There's not, it's, it's permeable. There's not a, um, a clear division between the two. They're very connected. I think there are some examples of what this can look like. Uh, Things like only wanting to follow Jesus if he aligns with your politics uh, or if he hangs out with the type of people you would hang out with. This applies to, I think, a lot of people in the New Testament who are around Jesus. We're probably asking these types of questions. Um, if he criticizes the same things you criticize. 
there's a pastor named Rich Viedas who uh, talks about this in a way I thought was really helpful. So I'm going to read what he says. But he's kind of saying, if, you're, if you find yourself reacting or being defensive uh, when a political leader or political party uh, that you like or identify with is criticized, then there might be a few issues here. And so he kind of walks through what happens a lot of times when that happens. So he says, to critique a political leader is to critique the party that you belong to. And to critique the party that you belong to is to critique the particular values that make up that party. And to critique the particular values that make up that party is to critique the way you read your Bible. And to critique the way you read your Bible is to critique your conception of God, and to critique your conception of God is to critique your deep center, your identity. So you can see how when you are enmeshed into politics or a political candidate, and there's no barrier between that, it's easy for that cascade effect to happen. And I'm saying this from personal experience, right? I can relate to this. It sort of becomes this thing where it kind of snowballs in to now it's not just critiquing something out there, but it's critiquing something in here. It's critiquing something I, I believe deeply, and now suddenly I'm not so sure how to think about these things. But I think this passage tells us that if we are deeply offended or defensive when someone criticizes a candidate or party that we align with, we might be giving more to Caesar than to God. And Jesus showed us a path of not getting enmeshed with politics, how he, and we see that in how he stayed laser-focused on his mission. He could have used his power and his influence to take over the government, like everybody wanted him to. But he stayed focused on the kingdom of God, his mission of going to the cross, and bringing all of that about. And you might think, well, can't I use politics to help bring about the kingdom of God? And I would actually say, yeah, you can. I think there are ways to do that. And I think you should be engaged in the process. But here's where my concern comes in. When we start to think that only our party or our way of thinking or our candidate is the one that lines up with the mission of God. And I'm sure there are parts of your political party or your political beliefs that do line up with the mission of God. And that's great. But I also guarantee you that Parts of the other side, whoever that is for you, also have aspects of their beliefs and their values that line up with the kingdom of God. Uh, about a year ago, we did a series called Kingdom Politics. It was just four messages long. Uh, but Joel really did a message where he dived into this and talked about some of the ways that we see God's values, kingdom values, biblical values in both sides of the aisle, in both parties, in different ways. And I think that it's important for us to remember that. And it's not that you can't have opinions, right? Jesus had strong opinions, and he critiqued things that didn't line up with his values. He, didn't, he was not afraid to challenge certain things and to encourage people to do better. And I think we should do that too. But I also think that we can't get into the mindset that only our way of doing it is right. That everyone needs to get onto our side because we clearly are the ones who know how to do this. So we shouldn't ignore politics. They can be a tool to help us see God's work done, but they're not the primary tool. They're not the only tool. And if we start to think that, then we start to go a little bit too far. If you've started to think that it's more important to convince someone to vote for your candidate than it is to convince them to love Jesus, then you've gone too far. 
And I get it. You're probably thinking, but I want a better world. <laughs> I want things to be better, and there are biblical values and true things in you know, my political beliefs that I want to see happen. And I get that. Jesus did too, probably more than any of us. But he chose to, instead of taking over power, to saying, I'm going to grab this power and I'm going to use it for you know, the good that I can, he gave up his power. He chose to go to the cross and he died. And honestly, through that, through that idea of sacrificing and giving up, he accomplished more than he could have had he ever gone and grabbed the power and taken over, become Caesar, become you know, the next revolutionary. He, him giving up his power and serving others did more for us than him taking power and serving in a political capacity could have. Okay, now I want to talk a little bit about what that means for community, because we see this a little bit in uh, Jesus' followers and his disciples. So it says in this passage that everyone uh, who heard this interaction with Jesus was amazed, because Jesus avoided this trap and he created a new way of thinking. And I have to imagine that while a lot of people were amazed, <laughs> that a lot of people were also really offended. Uh, Jesus pretty much offended every single person in this story. He said, he called people hypocrites, uh, and the, he, I'm sure that the tax collectors probably felt offended by that. Uh, and he also publicly dismissed all of the zealots' ideas of like, hey, we're going to start a revolution and we're not going to pay taxes. So I'm sure they felt a little bit offended. Uh, and yet we know that Jesus had both tax collectors and zealots in his group of disciples. Matthew 10, verses 2 through 4, says, These are the names of the twelve apostles. First Simon, who was called Peter, and his brother Andrew, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So they both were in this group uh, of disciples that followed Jesus. And I'm going to read something here from a pastor named Scott Sauls. Uh, it's a little bit of a longer quote, but I just felt like it was incredibly helpful. So uh, this is from Scott Sauls. He says, Consider the gospel according to Matthew, where the disciple states that he, Matthew, was a tax collector and Simon was a zealot. This is significant because Simon's zealot party worked against the government while Matthew's tax collecting party worked for the government. You might say that Simon was a right-leaning small government loyalist who thought that the state should keep out of people's business, and Matthew was a left-leaning big government loyalist who made a career of collecting taxes for the state. As far as we can tell, Simon remained a zealot and Matthew remained a tax collector, even after they started following Jesus. Despite their opposing political beliefs, Matthew and Simon were friends. And Matthew wanted us to know this. Christians then have been given an otherworldly ability to feel at home with people who share our faith, but not our politics, even more than we do with people who share our politics, but not our faith. If this is not our experience, then we very well may be rendering to Caesar what belongs to God. Ouch, right? Do you feel more at home with people who share your faith? or your politics. I don't want Resurrection City to be a place where you have to have a certain political belief in order to feel welcome. We don't even say that about spiritual beliefs. <laughs> That's the whole point we've been doing this series and saying, it's okay if you have questions, it's okay if you have doubts, let's just come together and try to follow Jesus. 
So why would we ever say that you have to have a certain political belief in order to feel welcome here when we're not even doing that about spiritual beliefs? If you feel that way or if you've ever thought that way, it's probably because we're giving more to Caesar than we are to God. And I know this is difficult, uh, but at Resurrection City, we talk about giving people the benefit of the doubt, about asking questions instead of making accusations or assumptions. Because in Ephesians 2, Paul says, For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For, though, for through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. So through Christ, God came near to us, those who are far away and those who are near. He came and sought us out to give us a message of peace and of reconciliation. Jesus went to the cross and died so that in one body he could reconcile everybody to God through the cross. So we need to not put up barriers where God has already knocked them down. Yes, if relationships are unhealthy, boundaries can be helpful for a time. Uh, I am a firm believer in boundaries, and I'm happy to talk about that with you if you have individual situations or questions about that. But boundaries are, are sort of meant to be like training wheels. They're meant to help us get to a healthy place or, or hopefully help the other person get to a hope, healthy place so that you can have relationship together. They're not meant to be permanent walls. And oftentimes I think a byproduct of not having enough of a barrier between our identity and our politics means that we want to put up more barriers between people who don't have the same politics as us. So I think when we, have, when we feel this, when we feel this uh, desire to put up these barriers between us and others, I think we need to check our own hearts too and ask, am I letting politics be too much of my identity as I'm thinking about this? Okay, a few other caveats before we get to questions, because I'm sure I will get questions about these different things. Uh, I'm not saying that you need to agree with everyone. I think far too often we conflate respecting other people with agreement. So in order for me to feel respected by you, you need to have the same beliefs that I do, or you need to like, come around to my side or agree with me. And that's not actually what respect is. I think for us, respect means that we acknowledge and appreciate that everyone is made in the image of God. Psalm 139 says that uh, we were knit together in our mother's womb and that God is the one who does this. God is the one who oversees this project of knitting together every single person. And uh, we were talking about this at our leadership team meeting uh, last week, and Miles brought up how knitting is not like a, a fast task. <laughs> It is something, I don't know, how many of you know how to knit? Is there anybody? Okay, so we've got a few people. It is a, we've got someone who's doing it right now. It's perfect. <laughs> um, it's, a, it's a long thing. It takes a while, right? Like, it is not something that you can just finish in a day. Um, I, I learned how to knit a long time ago, and I don't think I ever made anything more than, like, a fairly short scarf, <laughs> fairly short and skinny one, because it, it just takes a long time, and it's hard work. And so we have to remember that God took the time. He cared intentionally to create every single person in his image. 
And so when we disrespect people, we are forgetting that they are made in God's image, that God intentionally and craftfully created them. So for that reason alone, we need to respect other people. And some of you might say, well, what if these other people aren't respecting me? Now, if someone is not respecting you and making you feel like you are not made in the image of God or they're treating you in such a way that communicates that, that is a problem. And if it's serious, if you feel unsafe or if anything is um, just a serious problem, please come talk to us. We, this is where church leadership can get involved. We care about that. We care that there is not like, disrespect being thrown around, um, and especially in a serious way. And at the same time, if someone is, is dis, you, making you feel disrespected, but you get the sense that maybe they don't even realize that they're doing that, uh, or maybe they just haven't thought about how it, it could be disrespectful to certain groups of people or certain things, I really encourage you to have that conversation with that person, to tell them that you feel disrespected by that. Um, but you don't get to just be disrespectful back. Jesus himself says, bless those who curse you and pray for those who mistreat you. And so I think for us, we need to be able to have those hard conversations with people. Or if it really is a serious problem, then you need to let us know. We need to create some kind of situation so that you do feel safe. And I hope you hear me that I'm not saying I want false unity around here. (laughs) I'm looking that we would actually be willing to listen to one another as we follow Jesus. That we would have hard conversations with one another that we would challenge each other and that we would grow together because we are challenging each other and having hard conversations. I want people who are willing to repent when they're wrong and to see when they've become too enmeshed in their own politics. I want us to be a community who cares about the values of the kingdom, no matter what their political affiliation and no matter whose party they may be associated with. Right? You don't have to be a Democrat to care about racial justice and reconciliation, and you don't have to be a Republican to care about the rights of the unborn. These are kingdom values, and we need to value and care about the things of God as found in Scripture, not the things of Party A or Party B as found in their candidates. We are called to unite over the common ground that we share, that we were each and every single one of us created in the image of God. We know that we are sinners in need of a Savior, and that we know that Jesus is the only true Savior and King, that there is nobody else who can take that title from him. We're called to give back to Caesars what is Caesars, and to give to God what is God's, our lives, ourselves, our hearts. So I'm going to take some time to pray uh, this morning, and then we're going to take some questions from all of you. So please pray with me. Father, we worship and praise you as the one and only true king of our lives and of the world. We confess that we often give to Caesar or to any other thing that demands our attention what we should really be giving to you. Thank you for making a way for us to continue worshiping you through your son, Jesus Christ, and the sacrifice he made on the cross to tear down the walls between us and you and between us and each other. Please help us to live with love and peace and unity as you have taught us. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. Miles, do we have any questions this morning? Yeah, we've got a couple. Um, I'm going to paraphrase this one. Is everything you feel strongly about considered politics? And if so, are there exceptions 
for the things that you should set aside in order to have harmony with another believer. Yeah, so kind of asking like all, all any of our big emotions or big feelings if they're all politics and if we should like, um, I'm not totally sure what set aside means, but we can, we'll, we'll roll with it. And yep. maybe if you have further questions, you can, you can submit them too. Um, I, you know, I think I'm, I'm kind of talking about it as if like how we often talk about it in the larger culture. And I think right now it sort of feels like everything's political, uh, even though I don't think it needs to be. So I think maybe I, I could have done a better job clarifying that. But I do think that anything that you feel strong convictions about doesn't have to be political. I think, in fact, I would hope that we are able to recognize like which things are kingdom values and biblical values, and let's feel strongly about those, um, and maybe let some of the other things that maybe feel more like getting sucked into the world of politics, um, those maybe could be set aside to have like unity among believers. But I think we can't set aside the kingdom values and the biblical values. We have to hold firm to those. And that's where if you feel like someone else is not uh, having those same values, and but you see them in scripture, that's where it's, okay, let's have a conversation about that. And not a conversation where you go in like, I'm right and I'm going to prove you wrong, <laughs> but a conversation where you're really trying to listen. I think we've lost the art of listening a lot lately. Um, and so I think listening to where the other person is coming from, and then hopefully they'll also give you the chance to share and listen to where you're coming from and, and continue that conversation. Bring other people into it if it's not going uh, anywhere that's helpful. And that's how we're going to grow as a community if we have those hard conversations. If not, if we just say, I don't want to talk about these things because someone might get upset, it's when no one's going to grow, right? Like This is an opportunity for us all to grow together uh, as a church. Great. Thanks, Julie. Um, on an individual level, if somebody finds themselves uh, enmeshed politically or enmeshed to something else culturally, what should they do? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think the fact that you're maybe like considering that already is, is a huge win. Um, praise God for the work that he's doing in your life. And then I think, you know, as we've been talking about in the sermon, the sermon series, if go way back to the beginning, we talked a lot about repent and believe the good news. That's how Jesus starts his ministry is what he says. And so I think if you're feeling that, if you're feeling really enmeshed into your um, politics or some aspect of culture, repent just means turn from, right? So I think turning from that and turning towards God and recognizing you are the true king, you are my true identity, and I'm going to turn from this thing and, and look to you, even if that means I'm doing that like every single minute of every day, right? This is something we have to practice. And so if you are experiencing that, I would encourage you first to go to God and, and to repent and to pray about that. Um, and then I'd also encourage you to get some people around you who can help you with that. Um, if you're in a community group, talk to your community group. If you're not in one, I'd love for you to join one. That'd be great. Um, but if not, like find some other people who you can talk to. Um, because I think a lot of times this stuff is so... When we leave it all just up in our heads, it can be really hard to sort through. And so if we can get someone else involved to help us kind of sift through, like, what of this is political and what of this is actually of God and of kingdom values and, and how can I continue to practice turning from my own agenda or this political agenda to God's agenda and what, what God's mission is in the world. Um, yeah, so, and if you want help with that or if you want to talk through it, I'd love to talk with you about that. So let me know. Great. Uh, there's one more question. It's about Jesus's language in this particular passage. Okay. Um, this person thought 
the language seemed kind of harsh. And so can you talk a little bit about that and what we should draw from that as we think about um, being in community and holding each other accountable as Christians? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, one thing that I think is helpful to note, so he says, you hypocrites. Um, and I, hypocrite in its like actual definition and what it, what it meant then was like a play actor or somebody wearing a mask, which is funny now because you're all wearing masks, <laughs> but a different type of mask. Um, and so it was sort of, I think in that moment, he's sort of like pulling the mask off and saying like, you're trying to trap me. I can tell you're trying to trap me, right? I think for us, we, we take it as like, oh my gosh, you're telling me I'm like a terrible person who's like double-minded and not, you know, and I, I think there may have been a little bit of that double-mindedness uh, in that meaning of that word, but it, it ultimately means like a play actor or someone wearing that. So he's sort of like, you know, it's sort of, it feels a little bit like, you know, like the end of a whodunit scene. Um, I always think of Scooby-Doo and they like pull the mask off and they're like, this is who it really is. And, and so in some ways he's saying, this is who you really are. Like I'm, I'm showing you your true self by, by calling you out in this. And so I think that is something that we are called to do. Um, you know, I, th- I often think of how Christian community works as like, we get to be mirrors for other people. Um, we don't always see everything about ourselves. We don't always know everything. And the people around us often have a better picture of who we are than we do ourselves. And so they can help reveal that to us um, just by being a mirror. So oftentimes if I am in a relationship with someone and I you know, see something that I think you know, I, I kind of want to talk to them about that, or I kind of want to, like, call them out on that. I, my goal is always just to, like, be a mirror and say, hey, you know, I don't know if you feel this way or see this, but this is how I've been seeing, you know, kind of your life, or this is what I've been noticing lately. Like, do you, would you say that's true? How, you know, do you think, how do you think about that? Because it's just a, a way to kind of engage in that conversation and say, like, hey, I'm for you, and I'm just trying to help show you, like, what you might not be seeing. And so I think that's what my big takeaway would be from this interaction with Jesus. It also is like, you know, Jesus gets worked up sometimes. And that's like, you know, he says, in your anger, don't sin. And so apparently if he was angry, we don't really know if he was angry in this interaction. The language kind of comes across. It's harder when it's translated. But, you know, it's okay for us to feel strongly about certain things. Um, It's how we react in our emotion that matters. So, yeah. Cool. All right. Thank you guys for the questions. Um, We are going to head into a time of communion and worship through song. Um, And as we take communion today, if you didn't get one, you can grab one from the lobby or just raise your hand. Someone will bring one out to you. But it's a good reminder, again, of that Ephesians 2 passage, right? Jesus' death tore down the wall between us and God and between us and one another. And so as you take communion today, I invite you to reflect on that and just on the ways that his sacrifice allowed for us to be able to uh, reconcile with him and with each other.